If, if you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Acts. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to start out by reading this passage, verses uh, 6 through 26 of Acts chapter 1. That's our spiritual food uh, for this morning. So if you've got a pew Bible, grab that and go to page 909. You'll find it there. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning as we read this passage together. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6, reading in Jesus' name. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the, their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of the wickedness, of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a Keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus more clearly, to look at ourselves correctly, Lord, in light of your word, and then that you would change us, even this morning as we leave this place, uh, to be filled with your spirit, to be your witnesses wherever we are. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have a seat. Unfinished. That's the, ni- the name of our series in the book of Acts. Unfinished. The church is unfinished, and, and we are unfinished as Christians. How many of you here this morning 
believe that God's not done with you yet. How many here believe that? That's good. That admission tells us a couple different things. Number one, you realize that you need work. When you say that, there's a certain humility saying, God's not done with me yet. He's working in my life. There's a humility to say, I need work done to me. I'm not where I know I should be. I'm not where I once was, but I know that I'm not quite where I should be like Jesus. Secondly, it says this, that you are trusting that God will do the work. You know that you're not where you need to be, but you're trusting that God's at work in your life. Now we know that we don't just sit by the sidelines and just God's going to do something in me and he's going to change me and I don't have to do anything. No, you work in your sanctification as well. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. He said to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then verse 13, because it's God who does the work in you. Wow, Paul. So you work it out because it's God's doing the work. Maybe that's why Peter said that Paul says tough things. They're hard to understand. We know that God is working in us, but we take the step of obedience to do the work that God requires. We're going to see this come out in the next weeks in Acts chapter 2, where the scriptures always allow both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty to stand together. And it's the same with God's work in our life, that God saves us. It's nothing that we do, but then he changes us as we work to be changed. So the church is also unfinished. Not only are we as individuals, the church is. We're a work in progress. There's no perfect church. We say this all the time in our Discover Membership class. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because then it won't be perfect. There are no perfect Christians. There's no perfect church. We're a work in progress. But there is coming a day where we will be made perfect. That the church will be made perfect in Jesus' kingdom. When he restores the kingdom, when he comes back again, he's going to make his bride, the church, us, to be perfect in his kingdom. Matter of fact, the disciples you see in the beginning of our text, in Acts chapter 1, they're with the, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and they ask him about this very question. Is it time now for you to restore the kingdom of Israel, they ask in verse 6? Now these poor disciples, we love the disciples, we'd be just like them. They're 0 for 2 so far in Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, 0 for 1 when Jesus went to the cross, right? They didn't know that, even though he had told them, they didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer for the, for the sins of the world, that Jesus had to go to the cross... They didn't realize it, and they were running for their lives, scared and ashamed. One was lost his clothes, running away naked and ashamed because Jesus was arrested and led to be crucified. Beforehand, when Jesus even mentioned this and talked a little bit about it, it was Peter who came up to Jesus and kind of pulled him aside. Hey, Jesus, don't talk like that. You don't need to do that. Don't talk like that. Remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. The disciples didn't understand. Oh, for one, with the crucifixion. Then they are 0 for 2 with the the resurrection. So they're ashamed, they're in hiding. Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus. And then Jesus rose on the third day from the dead. And they're sprinting down to the tomb to find the empty tomb. Jesus had risen and Jesus then appears to the disciples. And now they say, well, okay, we missed the the death of Christ on the cross. We we didn't get the, the resurrection, but now, Jesus, now is the time for you to set up your kingdom. 0 for 3, Jesus says, no, but you 
will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. And this is point number one. The incredible promise of the Holy Spirit. By the way, in our small group, we talked about this this past week. thought it was a really important conversation to have. Jesus says this about the disciples' question. We understand their question about, is this the time? It makes sense. It would make sense that it would be. But he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And there's a lot of talk, even among evangelical Christianity, about um, the dates and the times and, and, uh, and what's going to specifically happen. And there's, maybe there's signs in the, in the heavens. And I heard a message this past week where the whole 40 minutes was dedicated to all the signs and the, and the specific dates and the numbers. And it was fascinating. But it was garbage. So we can get wrapped up in all of these things and miss the big idea that Jesus is coming back. We must be ready. And we don't know the time. We don't know the dates. But let's talk about him coming and what are we going to do before he gets here. So the incredible promise of the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus to to the disciples. And the Holy Spirit, you notice here, is not a force. He's not a power. He's not an electricity. The Holy Spirit, He is a person. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When He comes. He is part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within a person when you're saved. When you're a follower of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and makes His residence in you. And so that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you prayed a prayer, Jesus, come into my heart. The Holy Spirit came into your life, into your life, into your heart, and dwells within you. And the Holy Spirit comes and He gives power to God's people. He gives them power, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed that we'll see next week in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Sunday, and uh, he does give power. Matter of fact, in the early church, you can look at all the examples of the power that God's people had, even as they faced persecution and even the end of their life. And you look at those disciples, even just around Jesus, you, Peter, the one who denied that he even knew Jesus, now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he is testifying to the truth of the risen Savior, and he is put to death, and he is crucified. And church tradition history tells us that he was crucified upside down. He said that I was not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord and Savior Jesus was. He gave of his life. James, we'll read later on in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he's put to death by Herod. John, he's exiled. He's the only one of the 12 that we know of that wasn't put to death, but rather was exiled. And then we have Jesus' brother, James, who comes to believe in Jesus after Jesus has risen from the dead. You see that he's there in verse 14 uh, with this group of 120 He wasn't around during Jesus' life in ministry. They didn't know what to think of Jesus, but now after Jesus had risen from the dead, James is testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ, and he is thrown off the temple, and he is murdered for speaking the name of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit gives power to God's people. 
Examples today, you can look all over the world. If you take Iraq, for example, in 2003, there were 4 million Christians in Iraq. Today, the number is estimated to be around 250,000 people murdered, people fleeing. Um, But there's power in the name of Jesus. Let me go further. This power enables us to be Christ's witnesses. That's what the text says. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. So these these martyrs suffered while witnessing for Jesus Christ. So we'll look at the current situation in a moment, but let's go back to the story of James, Jesus' brother. He's thrown off the temple for speaking the name of Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord. Remember, that's his earthly brother, his half-brother. And then he is on the ground, uh, fatally wounded, but still alive, and still speaking the name of Jesus until someone kills him and hits him over the head, and he's stoned and killed. How can this be? How can he do this? Because he is filled with the Holy Spirit to be Jesus' witness. I got a chance this past week to look at some modern witnesses for uh, Jesus Christ, specifically as it pertains to persecution all around the world. If you have some time, I encourage you this week to just Google Under Caesar's Sword. Under Caesar's Sword is the name of a global research project that investigates how Christian communities respond when their religious freedom is severely violated. It's in partnership of the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture, the Religious Freedom Institute, and Georgetown University's Religious Freedom Research Project. It's supported by the Templeton Religion Trust. Let me just give you a few numbers. In 2013, Christians were harassed in 102 countries. In 2012, 76% of the world's population lived in a religiously repressive country. An average of 10 Christians are killed daily by the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram in Nigeria. Christians are the victims of 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world. The study that goes on to talk about dozens of countries where this persecution is happening, the study concludes uh, this, this very thing. Almost unilaterally, unilaterally, across the board, the Christian's response to persecution was almost always, with one or two exceptions, non-violent. Out of all of the persecutions in all of these countries, and people fleeing for their lives, and people running from the sword, or standing up for Jesus, the name of Jesus, and refusing to reject Jesus, They are being witnesses for Christ. They're being like Jesus. And they're listening and heeding and doing his teaching to pray for those who persecute you. You receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. So this incredible promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. So let me ask you this question. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, it says, don't be drunk with wine that leads to debauchery. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. The tense of that being filled is, is really, we could say it this way, be being filled. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in Him, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. 
It's not that you need a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, but rather you need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit as you live your life. As you walk in this world and you're confronted by all these sins and sinful situations, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be Christ's witnesses. A non-Christian's response to this is, no, they're not being filled with the Holy Spirit because they don't believe. They've rejected Jesus Christ. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. This is the unforgivable sin, that you would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? To continually reject God's Word through His Spirit in your life. And there's coming a day as you reject, and as you reject, and as you reject, that you are lost. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But Christians can also do something. Christians who have the Holy Spirit can also negatively affect the Spirit's work in your life. Let me give you two from the Scriptures. Number one, are you grieving the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who was given to you as a down payment for your inheritance. Don't grieve God Almighty living in you by what you do. Grieving the Holy Spirit is doing the things that the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to do. It's the sin of commission. You're committing sin that you know is not right. Let me give you a simple example. It probably, people don't even think it's a big deal. That you would use the name of God in vain. The scriptures say, don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. One of the commandments. And, uh, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I say Jesus and I'm not praying to him? Well, that's the whole point. Don't use his name in vain. Don't use it as not a big deal because he is a big deal. And every time you choose to do that, you're grieving the Spirit of God that lives inside you. Grieving the Spirit, doing the things that God asks you not to do, that God declares in his goodness and in his righteousness and in his plan and purpose that these things are out of bounds for a Christian. You grieve the Spirit. The second thing that we can do to him who lives within us is we can... Um, quench the Spirit's work in us. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Don't quench Him. So grieving the Spirit is doing the thing that causes Him grief, sin. Quenching the Spirit is not doing the thing that He asks you to do or that He prompts you to do. Let me give you a perfect example. You're sitting on an airplane. You're flying somewhere. And uh, God's really just speaking to you. Hey, speak to that person next to you. Just, just speak, just open up and just talk to that person. No, God, I'm tired. I've got to get a nap in. I've got to take a quick little snooze. Or, or uh, maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's at the bank. And you're in the line in the bank and there's a lady standing next to you and you're talking small talk. Hey, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about uh, your church. Invite them to the barn bash. No. you got your reasons. That's grieving. The Spirit is committing Quenching is not doing the things that he asks you to do. So as you ask the question, are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? I would say a couple different things. First, that we would confess all known sin. We want to be his witnesses. We want to receive the promise, this incredible promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We believe that he is in our lives. That we would, as Christians, confess all known sin. Number one. And then number two, ask to be filled. Holy Spirit, come fill my heart and my life. I don't know how many times I've done this in a group setting or preaching or teaching. 
But as we confess all known sin to God, um, it seems that there's uh, always an issue of unforgiveness that someone is dealing with. Unforgiveness of something. And so I say, uh, think of... uh, Ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind anyone that you need to forgive that you have not forgiven and you're holding on to that and there's a bitterness within you. Ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit right now to bring that person to mind. And the Holy Spirit, He's a person. He's God living in you and He does. Confess all no sin. Ask to be filled. Now within this story of our text here, we see the ascension of Jesus And he gives this promise, and they're looking, and Jesus leaves. He's going to come back, but he he leaves. And then they go, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're praying together, and they're seeking the Lord together. And then they select someone to take the place of Judas. Now, in between these stories of the ascension and the replacement of Judas, there's this parenthetical statement about Judas. And we see this right here in the text, and I think for a a number of different reasons which will become clear to us, I'm calling it the tragic case of Judas Iscariot in verse 18 and 19. So Peter stands up and he says, Scripture must be fulfilled, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But then in verse 18, Luke, the writer of Acts, takes a minute to explain what happened to Judas. This is a tragic case. Because, number one, Judas was called to follow Jesus, and he was close to Jesus. We see his calling and his selection in Mark chapter 3. He's with the other disciples. He is called by Jesus, and he's close to Jesus. He's with Jesus during his earthly ministry, but, here's the tragedy, Judas did not care about Jesus' mission So he chose sin over the Savior. Judas didn't care about Jesus' mission. Remember the woman comes to Jesus and anoints Jesus with perfume, with expensive perfume, and Judas is there and he's seeing this spectacle and he's saying, what a waste of money. You know, we could take that, sold that, and give the money to the poor. Meanwhile, Judas is skimming off the top and taking money from the treasury that they have. So outwardly, he, 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 this is brutal. Why? Because he's selfish and he's greedy and he wants the money, but he'll say the thing that c- covers that up, that conceals that. We could take that and give it to the poor. Well, that's not in his heart. John chapter 12, he was taking. And then he, his, his love of money comes again when the authorities are seeking to get Jesus and Judas becomes the guide to Jesus. And he does it for how much again? I can't remember. How much silver? How many pieces? 30 pieces of silver. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And then Jesus is declared to be guilty, condemned to death. We read in the text, in the gospel accounts, and Judas flees. He comes, actually, before he flees, he comes back to the authorities and he gives them back the money. Jesus is condemned to death. He's remorseful. And then he flees and runs out. And then we hear what happens and he goes out. And he either, according to some commentators, hung himself or he falls headlong. He, he dies. 
tragic end. And he was remorseful. Jesus is condemned. And he did it. Now, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is talking about uh, writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And he was hard with them. He had the hard conversations in his letter, letters with the Corinthian church. We don't have the letter that he's referencing. There was evidently another letter to the Corinthian church in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We don't have that. But he's mentioning that and it, it made them grieve. It hurt them. The words that he spoke to the church in Corinth hurt them. And he rejoices, verse 9, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is going on in Judas. He is remorseful. So much so he is going to end his life over this, but he's not repentant. The whole time Judas, it appears, is with Jesus. Outwardly, he looked like he had everything right. He was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He actually cared for the poor. Behind closed doors, inwardly, he was lost. He was hurting he betrayed Jesus. And afterwards he felt so horrible. Sin had, had had its way with him. And instead of repenting, instead of turning in godly grief and sorrow to lead to repentance, he wallowed in the mire and was lost in the pain and tragedy of sin. What a sad case. So let me ask you this. Have you examined yourself correctly? We must examine ourselves correctly. We don't want to be a Judas. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, Test and see, examine yourself, and test to see that you're part of the body of Christ. Let me give you the exact 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so let's take a moment to do that. To examine ourselves. Let me give you two questions to ask of yourself, okay? Two questions. Question number one. Do you call yourself a Christian because you love Christian things? Or because you love Jesus? Now Pastor Tim kind of talked about it a little bit during our prayer time. Being part of a Christian community, there's a lot of benefits of it. You can come for corporate worship. You can hear some good music. You can sing, but you don't have to sing if you don't want to. You can just listen. You can come hear a message. You can come watch Steve dance around at Blackberry Farm. You can come tonight and eat roast beef. You can get to be part of a Bible study, increase your knowledge. You can enjoy the benefits of Christian community and not be a Christian. You can have everything on the outside. Good, but you don't really love Jesus, but you love all the fringe benefits. You love the body. But it's possible to enjoy all of these things 
and not be right on the inside. And I'm speaking to someone who's not right on the inside, who needs to hear it this morning from the Holy Spirit, who would bring conviction that would cause sorrow in your heart, which would lead to repentance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We need to check our heart correctly. About eight years ago, I was having chest pains. I thought I was having chest pains. I don't know if I really was having chest pains or if it was just, I don't know, something. I felt something. And so I went to the doctor and she checked me out. I was 30 pounds lighter back then, so I was great. And uh, everything was fine. I said, but I want to take a stress test. Oh, you don't need to take a stress test. I, but I want to take a stress test. Okay, we'll do a stress test. And we did a stress test. Everything was fine. But I needed to check myself. And I needed to check myself correctly. I didn't want to just go to the doctor and just, just give me a once over, you're fine. I wanted to do the, the hard work. I wanted to do the stress test to, to make sure that I was okay. Friends and loved ones, it is possible to love Christian things and not love Jesus. It is possible to love the promise of heaven, but not care about the mission of Christ. It is possible to love the blessings and support of others and not care about being Christ's witnesses. That's question one. Number, number two, are there patterns of sin in my life? And I'll help you out with the answer. Yes. So have you identified your patterns of sin? And are you seeking to break those patterns in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are there patterns of sin in your life that you need to break? Are there secret sins? When I was growing up, the church that I was a part of, my family was a part of, um, the denomination association that we were part of, there was a president of that body, that church body. And um, I remember when the, the church that we were at, fairly large church, announced this. I, I can remember sitting there just blown away by it. His wife, who was a nurse, was declared to be HIV positive. And everybody was broken and crying and uh, he was in the church, actually, that, that I went to, I grew up in. And we prayed for husband and wife together. And I and, uh, couldn't believe this. Maybe she got HIV through her nursing, didn't know any of it. Well, about a year later, the, it came out that um, when he was traveling around the country to support all these different churches, he was having multiple homosexual affairs. And he contracted HIV, and, and he gave it to his wife, who then the next year died and he lived for a few more years before he died no one knew maybe he needed to hear a message maybe you're maybe not in the same exact boat but there's secret sin in your life and you hear this now and you need to be shaken and woken up from the pattern of sin in your life that God would grab you that if he, he would have heard that, that he said, I can't go on these trips anymore. Or if I have to go on a trip, somebody's going to be with me all the time. I'm going to bring my wife with me all the time. It was a sad, tragic case. And so this past week, because I have to preach this to myself before I preach to you, I've had to look at some ugly things in my life and 
repent and ask the Holy Spirit to come and do his work to break any pattern of sin that we would be free by the power of God's Spirit. The tragic case of Judas ends in a remorseful, sinful mess. By the way, Peter also denied that he knew Jesus, didn't betray Jesus. He denied that he knew Jesus, and he ran away remorseful, but he evidently ran away repenting. And he was there when Jesus came back, and Jesus restored him. Could the same have been said about Judas? Could Judas have been saved? Number two, we see the invincible purpose of the Holy Spirit. Now the rest of the text deals with, in chapter 1, this place, replacement of, of Judas. And instead of getting bogged down in some of the details of it, did some reading this week that maybe the disciples were too fast in their selection of Matthias. They should have waited. Paul might have been the guy. And, and so there's a lot of discussions that can be had around that. But here's the big idea that I think I want to drive home this morning. It's this. When the Holy Spirit says something, it will be fulfilled. You notice this in the words of Peter. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. When the Holy Spirit says something in God's word, it will be fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And they were fulfilled in the life of Judas. You see, the blood money purchased a desolate field. That was in fulfillment, even as Peter references Psalm 69, 25. And then Judas' office would be filled by another. He quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. God has said some things, and he will make them come about. And so let me just give you five this week that stuck out to me, just kind of in, in terms of everything that is going on this week in our church. And, and, uh, and so these five, God's promises are long. You can find so many that God will do as he says, but these were especially um, helpful for me this week. Number one, God has promised to be with us. God has promised to be with us. He promised that his people... Uh, the nation of Israel. And I think now we can, we can see that his promises are for us. Even as we read some of these, I would say, famous verses. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. God has promised to be with us, even in the storms of life. Number two, God will take care of all of our needs. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will take care of you no matter where you're at this morning as you come to Him in repentance and faith. Number three, God will heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Psalm 147 verse 3 That you would be broken, that you would be hurting and that God is there to heal. Number four, this is something that God said he will do, and, and we as Christians, we acknowledge it, but I don't know if we really believe it. All people will die once and stand before God in judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Now I say this because how many of us have a burning desire to reach people that will stand before judgment 
of God in our neighborhood. How many of us have a burning desire to see people come to saving faith and be forgiven of their sins? This truth, the Holy Spirit will fulfill it. All people will stand before God in judgment. And then number five, if you acknowledge Jesus before men, he will acknowledge you before God. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit will do what he says he will do. He did it here. And the disciples, through the casting of lots, Matthias is selected. So the casting of lots is kind of like drawing straws, although they they probably didn't draw straws. They probably used some stones or... um, But they believed that God would lead them. So they had these two men, and they prayed, and the one that was selected, the lot fell on Matthias. The scriptures were fulfilled. So this invincible purpose of the Holy Spirit is seen here in the selection of Matthias, but it it also is seen more broadly as the Holy Spirit guides people into truth. In this coming small group study, I am talking about small group for a purpose. I want you to be part of it. But in this coming small group study, lesson three, we see four major things that the Holy Spirit does as he guides people into truth. Number one, he, he saves people. People are born again by the Spirit of God in John chapter three. We are called to live like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We can endure suffering. As we talked about the church all over the world, they are enduring suffering, yet they are filled with power to still be Christ's witnesses by the power of the Spirit. We can use the gifts that He gives us for His kingdom. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about what will happen here in the next chapter, next week for us. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 16, verse 5. He says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus. The Holy Spirit points us to the cross. The Holy Spirit declares that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior of all. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit?